Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hi, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I am your host, Ian, joined by Emily and Megan, as ever. And we are all feeling a little juvenile this morning. <laughs> and who could blame us? Because we have just entered what I think is the, the, the single thing you hear the most as someone who is approaching this elephant of a book. Mm-hmm is wait until you get to the Paris sewers. We've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. I mean, is, is that what we've been doing? <laughs> well, we have. Been we've, l- been, we've been expecting a big, long passage, right, that goes on and on, a la Tolstoy and reflections on the philosophy of history. Like, you know, some like really burdensome passage in terms of length. Right, right. And it wasn't that long, was it? Not at all, no. <laughs> In fact, oh, but it was pungent. <laughs> Ian and I, we finished it, our reading, and we looked at each other and we're like, this is like, this is beautiful like, and so powerful. Well. Moving. <laughs> hold on, hold on. So I think that our listeners would agree that Megan is the most like emotionally intelligent, like sensitive Aww. and mature reader on this podcast. <laughs> That's very sweet of you. All right. <laughs> so, so Ian and I finish and we're like, wow, like so powerful. Like the metaphor is absolutely beautiful. Like I don't understand why people complain about this passage because it's so memorable and how good it is and like whatever. And then <laughs> I get a text from Megan uh, who on her reflections of reading and basically amounts to Haha, poop. <laughs> I felt like that was what I would normally do. So it was a really strange role reversal. (laughs) So funny. I really was. I was sitting on my back patio of a summer evening. I was reading, I was, I was doing something erudite. I was reading Hugo and I was laughing like a junior high boy about poop jokes. I could not get over it. Oh man. You find so many creative ways to talk about pooping butts. In this section. I mean, it goes oh. from lines like fetid streams of subterranean slime. And you're like, all right, he's he's reaching. He's reaching. Two <laughs> phrases like this. Leakage is the word. Europe is ruining herself in this way by exhaustion. All I can think of is dysentery. <laughs> dysentery. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. <sighs> yep. There was lots of being almost drowned in giant pools of excrement in this particular section. But I do I do think it's worth it's worth talking about the the metaphor. Um, I thought it was fascinating. So we it kind of comes to us in two sections, right? And the first one's shorter than the second one. The first one is actually a discussion of the sewers themselves, the construction thereof, and a critique of how Paris in particular, but really going all the way back to Rome, how large cities and the the heart of culture has decided to reject one of its most powerful resources mm-hmm. and his assertion which makes some sense his assertion is that that the collective excrement of a city 
is the most effective fertilizer that we are aware of in his own era, at least. And so if you were, if you were basically humble enough as humanity to recognize and embrace the power of this dark side of your humanity, you could actually bring a new level of flourishing to your society, fertilize the fields with the product of the city and everything will grow. But instead in our arrogance, we reject this side of our humanity and we flush it away. It's shameful. Yeah, it's shameful. It's dark. And so we don't we don't want to look at it. We don't want to think about it. And so we flush it away, which which has two effects. First of all, it means that the plane on which the city sits is not fertile. And secondly, it means that the water sources are all polluted because we are we're flushing it into the streams and rivers that are supposed to be uh, supplying our city with water. So it's, it, it was an interesting argument, and I think it I think it does address human nature from Hugo's perspective. Did you guys pick that up as well? Oh, yeah. If there's not a way to avoid associating the sewers with a concept of humanity because of all of the anatomical terms that he uses <laughs> to describe it. Did you have to look up any words, I Megan? I sure did. Uh, the word cloaca. <laughs> that's a new one for me. It's a new one. It. Uh, what are its two meanings? Well... I mean, one of them is, is sewer, and the yeah. other one is... Um... <laughs> <laughs> is it sphincter? Yeah. A sphincter yep. says what? Yep, that's the one. <laughs> Which makes lines like this just really funny. Each hiccup of our cloaca costs us a thousand francs. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to be growing up now. <clears throat> Ooh, no, you made a really gracious. a beautiful philosophical point. I just okay, it's out of my system. <laughs> I mean, both of them have to exist. Both of them have to exist. The other thing I thought that was that was really interesting and and philosophically powerful is when he gives us a list of monarchs, leaders, and more or less talks about the heroism of the time and money that they spend shoring up and or extending the sewers. Yeah, I was confused about that parallelism because on the one hand, he is saying that the sewers are a bad thing because of the way that they prevent France from flourishing. Mm -hmm. And yet all this exploration, this explorer that he talks about, uh, it starts with a B. Brunisseau or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brunisseau. He he really elevates him to hero and talks at the end of this chapter this first chapter for today talks about him as leading a revolution of sorts yes um, so i was a little confused about his his dual attitude towards it i mean he, he's had doubling attitudes towards a lot of things so <laughs> i guess i shouldn't be surprised anymore but i thought that was yeah. interesting when the sewers flood or overflow he describes it like an insurrection an attempt to bring reality to the surface and clamor for Mm -hmm. attention in things that are significant. And then the government ignores them yet again and says it's better to drive it away. In that way, it seems like Brunso is a hero of a revolution of sorts because he's daring to go and look at what's real under the city. Yeah. There's a big, long description about the sewer telling all or being, I think he says something like it's the conscience of the city, all things come together in state that's more than brotherhood it's intimacy 
and it's it's cynical and it's real and it's unclean and so it displeases us but first and foremost it is telling the truth about the nature of man and so Brunso brave enough to go and look, go and see the real state and make a map of the real state of humanity. Of course, he's elevated to a hero status. Yeah. He's he's the opposite sense. of someone who engages in this new word I learned, tergiversation. Ter- ter- tergiversation? Did you guys notice yeah, this I word? I thought that was a made up word, but- It just means equivocation. Right? The difference well, between us yeah, as readers is that I didn't look it up. I just assumed <laughs> that it was made up. You were like, so that's a, Hugo just made up a word. That's a fake word, Hugo. And then yep. I moved on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's not a made up word. It means mm-hmm. making statements that deliberately hide the truth. So obfuscation is basically mm-hmm. what it means. And maybe Brunso is a hero because he does not engage in tergiversation. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense within the larger scope of his metaphor that he wants France to be making use of its shameful elements instead of ignoring them. And the explorer, the one who's willing to look it in the face is is the hero of this section yeah that okay but that does lead me down a different path slightly because because on the one hand the creation of the sewer is a refusal to look at it is an impulse to flush it all away but then the people that are improving the sewer and here's an important bit the people that are making it straight that are vaulting its caverns that are that are uh what's the word i'm looking for that are making it more logical under there and mapping it and making it easier to get around and easier to maintain are talked about as as heroes. It makes me think that he's that he's using the sewers and the growth of the sewer over time in the same sentence as talking about the way that the the ideological principles of revolution and of France particularly are improving in a fundamental way the human heart and mind. Right. Like he's always talking about education, the light, the light and how that's going to solve something, how that's actually going to usher humanity into a new golden era of brotherhood and peace. And this seems to me to be at odds with the, the flip side of that coin with with the looking at the darkness of human nature and making use of it. He's he's at cross purposes with himself when he has this conversation. It takes me back to the previous one that we had last week, where I was raging at his uh, his pot shots at the, at um, the American uh, at, across the pond, right? Pot shots across the pond. And one of the things that I thought of after we were done is there's a fundamental difference between the revolution in America and the revolution in France, and that difference is the French tried to kill God as an idea. Their entire revolution was founded on the concept of a new religion of the state rather than religious conviction with regard to the Christian God. And he seems to want to have his cake and eat it, too, on this issue. And I think it's directly tied to this, what we're taking up today with the idea of human brokenness and suffering being the key to something. And he wants to talk about God. He wants Jean Valjean and his character and all of the the true and beautiful and good things about Jean Valjean to come down to an encounter with God that is mediated through his own suffering and his own brokenness. But then he wants to turn around and talk about France and talk about the state and talk about how what really needs to happen is light needs to come in and that enlightenment will drive away brokenness, will drive away suffering, will solve the problem. And I I don't know that you can say both of those things at the same time and not be in some sort of a contradiction. What do you guys think about that? Do you mean, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you mean that enlightenment ideas lead to humanism? The assumption that a man can perfect himself by a pursuit of the light 
And yeah, humanism is yeah. in direct contradiction with Christianity. Y- yes. Uh, better said than I said it. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I do think that's what's going on. He's he's a humanist, but he also seems to want to be to be a man of faith. And I don't know how well those ideas interact with each other. Well, I don't either. And again, the way that it came across to me as I was reading is every time he uh, stops and gives us a sermon or a philosophical lecture, those the tension of those ideas rankles. But every time he's presenting a fictional account and describing the way that a human being interacts in the world and the struggles he has in his soul, I it doesn't bother me because there are truths in tension down here in the world, in the human experience. And there are things right. that we can't grasp. And faith looks a lot like a question mark a lot of the time. So right. if, he, if, he would stick to, yeah, if he would stick to fiction, I think that uh, that duality wouldn't bother me so much. But I agree with you. It bothers me in the philosophical sections as well. He's got two different philosophies that may not jive. But when he's describing Jean Valjean looking for God in the darkness, I identify. Yeah, I agree with you. Like like we said, there's there are two sections here that are both the sewers. The first one is the description of how it gets built and how it's maintained over years and years and the shame that it is that we're wasting all of this filth, which I think is really funny. But then we immediately jump back into plot and Valjean is interacting with the sewers himself. And I thought it was more effective, actually. Well, I actually I think that his sewers metaphor is the most powerful thing that he's done so far mm-hmm. to, to communicate this point. I actually don't necessarily I mean, I, I see what you're saying about the the strengthening of the sewers being some kind of enlightenment project, but I'm not sure I didn't really pick that up. Like I think that there's something about this image that is perfect actually for for his purposes or maybe like for the purposes that jive with Jean Valjean. But how so, Emily? Well, it, the, this idea that it's it's the shameful bits, it's the brokenness of humanity that is going to lead to to God, or that needs to—I don't know. I want to keep unpacking this image because I think it's a it's a really good one. I loved this line on twelve fifty eight, where he talks about everything that can be found in the sewer and how it's mm-hmm. all jumbled together. And he says, it's more than brotherhood. It is closest intimacy. All that used to be painted is besmirched. The last veil is rent. A sewer is a cynic. It tells all. This sincerity of uncleanness pleases us, and it is a relief to the soul. Mm-hmm. So the there's a sense in which it's the great level, leveler. Like all the stratifications of society are broken down in the sewer, and the result is not some kind of elevated, like, humanist ubermensch but is instead like the lowest common denominator Mm -hmm. between men and that's just such a good starting point to talk about the at least the theological ideas that he wants to talk about Mm -hmm. no i definitely see that i also i don't know if this is right but it felt to me like his social gospel that he's constantly trying to offer us is at odds with that picture that you just gave us emily i think that that is something that drives him thematically and he wants to present that picture. It's the perfect image or metaphor for his project. But he also can't help but point a finger at the government and say, by the way, there was a giant opening in the sewer for like, you know, a hundred years and it was given everybody fever and you should have fixed this. And here's the, he even offers a plan at one point to clean the sewers and erase the problem. So there is a lot of contradiction in the way that he talks about the sewers. But 
putting it the way that you did, I really see that you're right. Thematically, it's a it's a picture and an image that's really powerful. This this hub of the wheel that he's been talking about of society has a a kernel of something important in it. Yeah, and I do, and this just might be the nature of, I don't know if it's if it's romanticism as a as a an expression of art, but there the same thing happened in War and Peace. There were two conversations going along parallel. One of them was was thematic and theological. And the other one was thematic and political. Yeah. And it's, I think it's actually a valid thing as an author to note that the lived human experience of an individual is different and appears to us down here in our limited perspective to operate on different rules than the experience of the, of the masses, the experience of the body politic. And so I don't know that, I mean, I, I agree with, with you, Megan, that I, I see some contradiction. I see some tension. It doesn't work out neatly, but who are we to expect that it should work out neatly? That's if, not our, if what he's our trying to do in is, life. Things aren't neat and tidy right, in he's life. He's trying to yeah. represent our experience of life. So maybe there's room for that kind of contradiction. And it's a bunch of poopy. Yeah, life is a bunch of poopy. <laughs> but also that theme that we've been tracing all the way through of uh, a man's darkest moment is a moment where God is not absent. Um, maybe he's not speaking, but he's very, very close and very, very present. And he's a witness. I'm thinking of Fontaine. I'm thinking of just about every character. Eponine, any character that's representative of as low as a man can sink, God is present. And here in the sewer scene, it's named in a really strong way. Uh, yeah. Jean Valjean basically steps down into a grave and it's described like like a death and rebirth. The entire journey through the sewers mm-hmm. is a death and rebirth. But to frame all of it, the first thing that we're told about this experience is that he finds celestial goodness taking him by treachery. There's an ambush mm. of providence mm. down in the sewers. So here, underneath the city of Paris, lower than we've even ever been before, that's where providence is going to ambush you in the best way. I just think that is so profound. And I wonder if it is made even more profound by the fact that he thinks the whole thing was a giant human screw up. Yeah. A, a, a mislocation of resources or a, yeah. a bad, I love that. Uh, that some, in that that jives with the fact that it's Thenardier who, mm-hmm. who ends up rescuing Jean Valjean in the end by letting him out the gate. And who doesn't think he's he is rescuing him. He thinks what he's doing is offering a a pacifying gift to Javert so that he can get away scot free. Right. So I don't know. You know, I I don't want to. I agree with everything that you're saying, especially as it pertains to last section reading. So I do want to say that <laughs> <laughs> on air. <laughs> well, it's a tricky. It's a tricky business. I mean, there's a, he says a lot of words. <laughs> there are just lots and lots of words in this book, man. And he says the same word a lot of times. Cloaca. Cloaca. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of the actual plot, there's not there's not a ton to to go over. Right. I mean, he takes Marius, who who is on the brink of death, apparently, and whom he hates. Did you guys yeah. notice? that? Oh, man, that was such a powerful moment. Yeah, it's incredible when he when he Just gets to, he gets moment. to a stopping place and lays him down to rest for a minute. And he's gentle and kind with him. He he cleans his face off and he tears up his own shirt to make bandages for him and then looks down on him with this look of hatred. And you just think, what kind of man are we dealing with here? Yeah. The big, long, I don't want to, Ian, you're you're in charge. You're leading us or fearless leader. Mm-hmm. But there is a big, long section about quicksand. 
slowly devouring you. That was so, I mean, I couldn't look away. It was like watching a train wreck. It was terrifying and horrible. And then Jean Valjean carries Marius on his shoulders through muck like that, that's trying to eat him alive, holding him over his head as he drowns in poop. You guys, <laughs> whoa. I mean, this this is cinematic. It is. Oh, yeah. It's so well written. And I also thought, I thought as we're talking about metaphors, that that quicksand image was suited, served a dual purpose. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's the bitterness and the grime of society, of, of this world that he's painted for us, where the rich get richer and the poor stay poor and where Paris is devouring itself. But it's also an image for hatred and what mm-hmm. hatred does to the human soul. Wow, well, yeah, my see eyes, that. My eyes just fell on this quote from the, the previous chapter again, where he's talking about the different people who have gone down to explore the sewers. And he says, there are no bulletins for these acts of bravery more useful, however, than the stupid slaughter of the battlefield. Mm. So we've just been on the barricades and there was all this glorious language about revolution, even though he was looking at it in the face and, and acknowledging its horrors, there was like this language of glory. And yet here there's something more noble about what's going on. And it's particularized by Jean Valjean and his heroism in the quicksand with mm-hmm. Marius. But I thought that was, I don't know, that's really powerful. I'm thinking more about your comment too, Ian, that this might be a metaphor for uh, what what hatred or cynicism or all the things that come about because of the darkness in society, what that can do to your, your heart and your mind. They suck you down and eat you alive. And mm-hmm. one of his lines, if that's true, if that image is true, this line means more. He says, the mire supports weight more or less according to its greater or lesser density. A child escapes where a man is lost. The first yeah. law of safety is to divest yourself of every kind of burden. So of course, what I was thinking is, okay, so it's impressive then that Javert, uh, excuse me, Jean Valjean doesn't try to save himself by throwing Marius, right? I need to right. weigh less. So get rid of this dead weight, literally. Literally. But yeah. if this is an image for hatred, the comment about the child escaping where the man would die is really profound. It made me think of Gavroche and all of the, yeah. the gamin in the story, all the children who do manage to uh, maintain some kind of balance and hope and joy in the face of their suffering mm-hmm. that the adults around them couldn't possibly hope to to grasp onto. Yeah, I, you, I, I love that. I also think it makes me think of Angelross. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the men of the barricade are boys. They're all mm-hmm. boys. And the way that Valjean interacts with them is really compelling, right? He, he sympathizes, he joins them, he defends them, but he does not kill. Yeah. And there's something there's something of the child in Valjean. And and if it's if it's children that escape in this situation, he does by the skin of his teeth. Right. But he oh, does. Yeah, me too. And and maybe it's even particularly because he doesn't let go of Marius mm-hmm. that the irony is if he had let go of Marius, he wouldn't have made if he had, it. If he had acted like a, like an adult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like I mean, it's a like a walking on water kind of scene. Mm-hmm. Slogging through water. (laughs) Yeah. Water. (laughs) Did you notice he kept using the word water? It was a little bit like water and some other stuff. And some other stuff. (laughs) He also didn't talk Uh, enough about the smell. I just really don't think he did justice to the, the, the asphyxiation 
element of yeah. the sewers. Well, he did use the word asphyxiation a bunch, but I, yeah, okay, I thought it was yeah. funny that the first time the smell really ca- came up was Tenardi <laughs> saying, you don't smell very good. <laughs> yeah, very good. And that's, those are the exact words. That's a quotation. You don't smell very good. <laughs> Understatement well, at its finest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I apologize for cursing, but no shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think of all of the episodes to drop that word, this is the one where it belongs. <laughs> I mean, we've said Cloaca, okay? A lot. I just want to slap him. I just want to slap Tenardier in this moment. Oh, real? Oh, I don't smell very good. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> I'm so covered in poop that no one recognizes me. <laughs> of course, I don't smell very good. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, but speaking of that, though, let's yes, jump okay, to the next yes. plot point. So, so Valjean escapes the sewer because of a deal with Tenardier that he doesn't really understand himself, right? He doesn't know what it is that Tenardier is doing, which is delivering him into the hands of Javert. He exits. There's this moment where the the open air and the the light reminds him of God and he mm-hmm. he exalts in his soul and then the law comes down on him with force there is Javert who doesn't recognize him because he's so covered in filth and Javert says who are you and his first impulse is i am Jean Valjean this honesty two four six but like but no, like let's that, not though, let's yes. not brush over yeah. it the on, no, no, immediate honesty it is as though he is he is yet again for, how many times has he done this just throwing himself into the arms of providence and saying mm-hmm. it will go with me like god wants it to here we are here i am yep which is just incredible and also perhaps a result of being in the sewers i mean if those are metaphorically a representation of as the reality of humanity and and the good that's to be found the relief or consolation he said uh in the heart of man in in living in that reality here, Jean Valjean is the product of that consolation. He's been spit out by it just now. So, of course, he's going to tell the truth. Yeah. Even in the plot, he's kind of at his lowest point. Uh, he's saving Marius, who he knows is... Um, going to steal his daughter. Yeah, because that's going to abandon him for Marius. And so th- there's nothing left for him. And it's when the characters have nothing left for them that their true true personhood comes out. And for Jean Valjean, it's... it's um, sacrificing himself he he's going to allow javert to take him finally because because cosette is moving on yeah so let's talk javert so there's this whole meditation when we watch tenardier whom we don't know is tenardier yet head for the sewer and and elude his pursuer there's this whole meditation on how noble the police force of paris is even when there's an uprising Mm -hmm. they don't let go of their normal duties, right? And in order to prove this, he takes Javert, who has just believed for sure that he was dead. He's been captured as a spy by the boys on the barricade. He needs a he's day He's been imprisoned for a whole day. <laughs> and, he's, and, and then he's been at, at Valjean's mercy, and Valjean has let him go. And his immediate response is to go back to work. And now he's, tra- he's tracking some random miscreant down the, down the shore of the river. Just, I mean, an insane level of... Of dedication to duty. <laughs> you keep saying duty. Do, I know. Do, duty. <laughs> I was wondering Sorry. when someone was going to notice. <laughs> I was trying to not be a junior high kid, but I'll go back. I'm yeah, always pretty close. <laughs> what kind of duty is it? Do, do, duty. I just think it's I think it's really interesting to watch the character of Javert, who is a villain without being a villain. Mm-hmm. Hugo will not let us disrespect this man's commitment to law and order 
and his commitment to an ethos, right? He has a he has a worldview, and he is as um, he's a perfect foil for Valjean in his commitment to it. And the situation is no exception. I think it's really cool. If we were in doubt also about his representation of justice, if if we were in doubt about Javert being the fleshing out justice, look no further than the chapter title of nine on page 1301. Marius seems dead to one who is a good judge. And if you read the chapter, Javert is the one who is considered a good judge. I think he would say that of himself, but also I think that Hugo would say that of him. His purpose in the story is to be a good judge. And here he is waffling all of a sudden. Well, he's, he's waffling about Valjean. Right. But he's also getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Marius is not dead. Mm-hmm. Well, except for if you continue on with what you guys are saying, he like if we allow this to be a, a symbol or a metaphor, like, yes, he is. Right. Right. Marius sure. is dead. He's been buried. He is condemned. And yet, like John Valjean's person. And, and it's in Javert's power, actually, to his life is in his power. If Javert right. had not allowed John Valjean to take him back to his grandfather, it's very possible that Marius would have died. And it's also he he was one of the combatants at the barricade and Javert recognizes him. Yeah. So before the law, he is dead, too. Right. So so the first thing that happens then, if we're if we're taking that rubric, is that Javert joins Valjean in his fatherly perspective on Marius and basically says, there's been enough killing of little boys today. Mm. Let's get this kid home and takes him home to his grandfather. We need to talk about the grandfather too. My goodness, what a scene. But so he takes him home and then Valjean says, can I go home? And he doesn't mention Cosette, but basically I need to set some affairs in order. And Javert allows that as well before the ultimate sacrifice of his vision of justice when he, without saying anything, quietly leaves Valjean to live his life and goes away. And every word he said to him in the whole scene, Hugo is careful to tell us, is said in a tone of respect. Javert now has a tone of respect for Jean Valjean that I'm sure rankles even as he's speaking it. But I hope that we get more more on the internal workings of Javert's transformation. Oh, I feel sure that we will. Don't you? <laughs> you think Hugo's going to pass out that kind of opportunity to bloviate? Bloviate, <laughs> 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 what a great word. <laughs> Did you guys notice another shout out to the musical that whenever the police force is mentioned, <laughs> it is in association with stars? Yes. The star, the shining star of the police force is underground, glowing with a small light, you know? Jean Valjean comes out into nature and he looks up and his soul is starry and Javert appears behind him in that moment. It's, you know, stars in their multitude. Scarce to be a counted. A representation <laughs> of justice, yes. And, Feeling the and darkness the eternal, even. but also a representation of the police force and Javert specifically. I'm excited yeah, to see how that light. metaphor turns out. Yeah. <laughs> they are the sentinels. Anyway. Um. <laughs> yep, just keep going until someone laughs. Yeah. <laughs> That's the rule. I can't help it. I can't help it. It started in my mind and now the song is playing. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Let's, let's wrap this up with a quick um, little, uh, a good cry on behalf of the whole crew at the response of Marius's grandfather to Marius coming home. Oh, was that not utterly heartrending in all of the possible ways? Yeah, it was so heartrending. And just also like finally, like all there's been so much misery and all of these there's 
been so many characters from the very, very beginning, starting with Fantine, who have had no earthly rescue. We have hope for their spiritual rescue, but they suffer on this earth, and that's kind of all there is for them in in the material realm. But finally, there's this man who does not, like, he does not deserve redemption of any kind in his relationships. He has, he holds, like, horrifying opinions about the way one should live one's life. And yet, there's this moment of grace for him. And it's just so powerful. Like, at long last, somebody is getting, like, in the land of the living, someone is yeah. getting something returned to them. All the, everything sad is coming untrue. Yeah. For the grandfather. Yeah. I can't talk about it. I just cried a whole time. <laughs> I know. It's so it's so beautiful. I, I also think that Hugo plays the scene very delicately. If the grandfather had walked back in and there had been no chip on his shoulder anymore at all, it wouldn't have been as powerful. Mm-hmm. But he can't decide in his grief whether to maintain his position of political disagreement with Marius and frustration over the, the youths and how the youths are acting, <laughs> right? Or to weep over his grandson. And what comes out is this garbled mixture of the principles that he has claimed as his personality and his growing self-knowledge, right? And, and it's all accusatory towards Marius until the very, very, very end. But more or less what he says is, I have been a fool. And now that I know it, you have left me in it. And, and I didn't get the chance to tell you, of course, everything I have is yours. Of course, I will obey you. This house is yours. You're the master of it. Tell me what to do. My time has passed me by, more or less. Yeah. He even says, I've never loved anyone like I loved you. I've had no, yeah. no amour like you, which I thought yeah. was so beautiful, given that his whole reputation in the, in the story, in his own mind, is to be a, a philanderer. Yeah, a catch, <laughs> a catch in the city. And he basically says, I've never loved anyone like I love you. I'll do whatever you say. Oh, just so powerful and wonderful. And when Marius wakes up, he's finally able to communicate it, which has been the problem all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he, when it comes to it, he's never been able to actually say that to Marius, but he does this time. Yeah. So good. Did Absolutely you guys awesome. notice that there are a couple times in this section where Hugo makes reference to Dante and the descent into yes. hell. Mm-hmm. So I just, I mean, I just, before we start wrapping up, I think it's powerful that it's not just, it's death and resurrection, which is a, a very prominent theme in this book, but also there's a, there's a descent into hell. And then, I mean, in Dante, it's the reversal, right? Mm-hmm. Come, coming to the bottom is coming to the top again. And I think all of our characters are experiencing that right now. Except Cosette. Well, Who just Cosette is very happy today because her sheets are so white. <laughs> so, so white. Her sheets are so white. Her pretty little bed is so white. Oh, so annoying. I just, man, oh, man. <laughs> well, she, no doubt we will be, get some more of Cosette. She's a Beatrice figure for sure. Yeah. If we're going with the Dantean image, she's Beatrice. Faux show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, you guys, thank you for walking with me through the filth <laughs> of the sewers. We did it. Um, we it conquered really the sewers. It wasn't painful at all. No, I thought it was pretty good, actually. Yeah. I really enjoyed this section. I can see why it's the thing people remember when they read this book. <laughs> but uh, oh, I do. <laughs> it is hard to avoid the poop jokes. 
<laughs> I didn't avoid them. I just, I just, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Someone had to do it. Again, I'm surprised it was you and not me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> just here to keep things interesting, you guys. Oh, Switching it up. <laughs> You're welcome for your new vocab words. Cloaca yep. and tergiversation. Nope, my, nope, that wasn't my it. My algorithm no, on <laughs> my Google algorithm is going to be wild for a while. <laughs> yeah. The words that I have had to look up in the past 24 hours. <laughs> you're going to start getting ads for medical Google's, programs? Google's like, are IBS. you okay? Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Blink once for yes. If you have a leaky cloaca, there are some home remedies. Okay, this has gone on long enough. This is the Howdy and Elephant Cruise signing off. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, friends. Bon appetit. Ew. <laughs> Happy digestion. <laughs> Bye, guys. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.